You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Asif Mandi's wide-ranging career includes acting, writing, producing, and time as a correspondent on the Jon Stewart era of The Daily Show. He currently stars in the show's Evil and This Way Up. In this episode, Mondi joins Washington Post Live to talk about his latest projects, challenging cultural stereotypes, and taking on Islamophobia in his work. Let's listen. I'm Ishan Tharoor, a foreign affairs columnist here at the Washington Post and author of Today's Worldview, the Post's daily column and newsletter on global politics. I'm delighted today to be joined by actor, writer, and producer Asif Mandi. Uh, Asif, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I love that intro. That was really something. I'm going to have to get that for myself just to watch every day. <laughs> well, we're, we're going to talk through some of the elements that you showed in the intro, but I think the place to start now um, is uh, the upcoming 20th anniversary of the events and the attacks of 9-11, which will, which will be on Saturday. Uh, I know for everybody who's not in Gen Z, we all have a lot of memories and feelings that we had of that day. Um, could you talk a bit about what you remember of 9-11 and how it impacted you? How did it impact you and what do you remember of it? I mean, I remember uh, it was uh, it was a Tuesday. It was a beautiful day. Uh, the weather was really nice, and uh, I woke up uh, to a phone call uh, telling me that my sister, I think, called me to say that a plane had flown into the World Trade Center. Um, and I just remember, you know, watching it on the news, and and I was uptown. I was like on the Upper West Side, and this thing was happening, you know, down in the financial district, and it could have, you wouldn't have known, like on the Upper West Side, it was just this gorgeous, beautiful day, the birds were singing, and it was just like a surreal feeling of being in the same city, but feeling like there was no sense of it, and and actually, weirdly enough, I, I remember just like, after the buildings had fallen, um, you know, there was this kind of just shock and stunned and not knowing what to do, uh, you know, and I, and I remember I had an allergist appointment. I had to go see my allergist for my monthly allergy shot. And I thought, well, I guess I'll just do that, you know, that I have an appointment, so I'll just go. And I just remember I, I couldn't get a cab, and, and so I decided to just walk through Central Park and uh, walked to the other side uh, to the east side on Fifth Avenue, and uh, a, an old friend of mine was riding his bicycle, and he and he came up to me, and he had his headphones on, and he took off his headphones, and he was just like, well, no, prior to that, as I got to Fifth Avenue, I looked down, and this was my first indication of it in 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 like, in real time, which was that I just looked down Fifth Avenue, and there were just hundreds of people walking up Fifth Avenue covered in dust. And it almost looked like the walking dead. Like it was like just, they were walking in the middle of the street, the street was closed off and they were just carrying their, you know, they'd all just come from office buildings. Everything below Midtown was shut down. And so, and and they were just covered in, in white and gray dust. And 
that was my first indication. I was like, oh my God, like, you know, it, it was, it was a very surreal thing to just see that. And then a friend of mine showed up on a bicycle and he took off his headphones and he was like, Hey man, what's, how you doing? What's going on? You know? And I was like, what, what do you mean? What's going on? Like, have you not? And I realized like he had been teaching back-to-back -back yoga classes from like eight o'clock that morning and had just gotten out. And had no idea that any of this would happen. And yep. my mother I, learned about it. We were sitting. I was in New York City. I was watching from the rooftop, the rooftop of my high school. Um, but my mother learned about it from a phone call from relatives in India, uh, is that right? which is part wow. of the surreal thing about being New Yorkers during 9/11. Uh, yeah. But obviously, what what followed, of course, uh, beyond the the real misery and suffering of thousands of people in New York. Uh, was, you know, a new geopolitical era that we were kind of thrust into. Yeah. Uh, and, and especially in the United States, especially for people who are Muslim American, uh, that came with a lot of ramifications. Could you talk a bit about sort of the advent of the kind of Islamophobia that maybe you didn't experience directly, but that you saw impact a broader community? Well, I mean, it just became suddenly, um, you know, I used, I used to do this joke where it was like before 9-11, uh, Americans thought Muslim was a type of cloth. And after that, after 9-11, it became an incredibly dirty word and it became a dangerous word. Uh, and suddenly, like every person who was raised Muslim or came from a Muslim family or suddenly was in this bizarre position where I felt like, I, I personally even felt like that I had to defend this religion uh, that I had just grown up with and that was just part of my, you know, like my life and my, you, you know, it, it was never, it was never a political thing to me. It was just the religion, my religion and, and the religion of my parents and my grandparents and all that. And so suddenly it was like, I became politicized and I became like a, a representative of something. Uh, and I wasn't even particularly uh, devout uh, and never have been really. So it was, it was one of those things where suddenly like I was forced to kind of, uh, you know, um, spell out my patriotism and also defend Islam. <clears throat> and I wasn't prepared to do that. I didn't know how to do that. I, I, I did it clumsily and, you know, and, and, and learned a lot in that process, uh, you know, um, I just, I just remember it being a time when, um, there were a lot of questions, you know, and then, and then like, why did this happen to us? And, and I think we all kind of, especially Brown people, especially Muslims, I think we just, we, we all suddenly had to like get into this melee whether we liked it or not because suddenly islam was being um represented and and muslims around the world were being represented in a way that just felt completely um ill-informed and reactionary and fear-based and the government and the media were now using this as a as a tool with which to propagate fear um 
to to create to to further agendas. You know, nine eleven for a tragic. It was this tragic thing, and it was like there was so much suffering, and there was so much all that. But it very quickly became a political tool, and it very quickly became like, okay, how do we use this to um, further an agenda that we've had? You know, like the invasion of Iraq and the removal of Saddam, and you know, and and, and just the whole. War on terror that just had been had been had now it just gave it suddenly became this thing where um, it, it, and it continues to be I think to this day Islamophobia and all of that is still a tool. there was there was there was a kind of moment uh, I would say in mid mid to late aughts where you especially on the Daily Show were one of the more prominent if I can say brown men on television uh, mm. kind of working through the stuff that you're just talking about right now. In your segments and in your in your monologues and in your jokes, could you talk a bit about how you processed Islamophobia and the political moment in your work? Well, I mean, I was very fortunate in that I came to the Daily Show in two thousand six, and we were in Iraq at the time, and the United States was, and it was definitely a time when I suddenly had this platform and this opportunity to talk about things that I didn't even know that I wanted to talk about. I came to The Daily Show because I'm an actor and a comedian and, and, I, and I came to it that way and then suddenly realized, oh, this is a place for me to talk about some of this stuff. And I luckily had writers and uh, producers and people at The Daily Show who I, who I was able to work with in terms of putting these pieces together, and sometimes, um, and and and, the, and that they felt the same way. I think they they sort of realized, like, oh, we have Asif, who is a, a, a Muslim, an American brown person, you know, who who can sit on that fence between cultures and sort of talk about what it is, what this is, from the perspective of being an insider and an outsider at the same time. So it definitely. Um, was transformative for me because I got to I got to talk about things and and also educate myself a great deal about what was going on in the world. I think you had to at that time right. just know what was going on in the world because especially as a brown person because you were just in, bombarded with well why should we not believe that every Muslim is harboring hatred towards America you know like that was a very common sentiment a common sort of fear, common belief, you know? Um, and you had to like be able to answer that. So it was it was it was it was a it was a way for me also to do that using comedy and using uh, satire as a way to to talk about that stuff, which which I felt was really powerful because a lot of you know when when I first got on the Daily Show, especially those years 2006, 2008, like before Obama came into power and and and, and it was that time when when there was no representation of the of the sort of quote unquote Muslim voice on television, other than just the terrorist or the, you know, the evil bad guy or whatever. There was no representation of that perspective or anything. And so when I came along on the Daily Show, I think a lot of brown people were like, "Yes, yeah, somebody who is looks like me and is sort of talking about this from the perspective of like, you know, where I'm looking at it from, you know." Uh, because at that time, I think all of us, it was like we were being asked to. To, to, to make, a, to, to allay Americans' fears, but we were terrified, you know? I was like, 
why don't you make me less afraid? You know, tell me that you're not going to like just go bomb every brown person living on this world now. You know, and that's what it felt like at that time, especially like 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 we're just right. now, you know, shock and awe across the world. Right. So I mean, and, and this gets me to another question. I think you know, I'm curious. What do you think? Twenty years since 9/11, where do you think mm-hmm. we are in that arc in terms of how Muslim Americans have to feel or do feel in the society here? And are made to feel. I mean, I was quite stunned by this uh, multi-year Pew Research poll that that found that essentially more Americans believe now uh, that Islam is more is a, a more inherently violent religion than other religions than they did six months after 9/11. Uh, so, I mean, that yeah. tells a different kind of story. Yeah, and I think you know. Uh... It's been it's been up and down. I think that you know I think Islam gets again like I said it gets used as a political football. You know Trump came along and and suddenly you know we had a few years. You know even when Obama came along everyone was like well he might be Muslim. You know the people <laughs> was like really um, you know that was sort of like considered like his you know uh, in in the negative slot against him that he might be he might be Muslim. Uh, and then you had Trump come along and, and fan those flames of fear again, and it's and it's and it's just used when it's convenient to um, enact policy and to uh, shift blame, right? Like like it's it's like, oh, if we can if we cannot criticize, if we cannot see the flaws in our own society and our own government, and and we can make it about Muslims and immigrants and you know, those people from the outside who are coming in. And so, and Trump was a master of that, right? He, he basically just shifted the narrative and said, well, if any problems you have, you can blame Muslims, Mexicans, you know, progressives, whatever. It all sort of got lumped into this kind of thing where Muslims suddenly became, uh, you know, uh, the, the reason that, you know, that worry about that. Let's worry, let's keep our focus, people. And worry about the things, and don't look at the man behind the mirror, or behind the curtain over here, you know. Um, and so it, it is. It is that. And so I think it goes up and down. It's like whenever it's needed, Islam is dusted off and kind of brought to the forefront and been like, ah, here's the thing. Those Muslims will be still be afraid of them. You know, you've got artists and people, creators, and 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 there's a lot of conversation, you know, about Islam and people sort of. I mean, today I think we have much more um, storytelling, even in the media and stuff. You know, I think we have a better understanding of 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 of, of the religion and the Muslims and and, and that, but but still, that seeded underlying fear of uh, of Muslims is is there. And now, you know, again, you see it now with this you know, completely botched Afghanistan uh, withdrawal. And now you see the Taliban coming in and you suddenly see the, the faces of quote unquote Muslims on the on television again, you know, as these maniacal, bearded, turbaned, Kalishnikov wielding insane people, you know? And that becomes the poster boy for all that is Muslim or Islam, you know, and so and, and then so you see it again now and now it's like 
you know, the Taliban, are, you know, they're coming and they're doing, and it's like, it's like, yeah, okay, but, you know, we kind of, we knew that they were going to take over in a few weeks. We're not, you know, it's not like we didn't know, you know, and, and, and the complications of that get really sort of just leveled out. You know, the, the complications get, get, get washed away and it just becomes unnuanced and very kind of binary, you know, evil, good. So, I mean, and I think we're going to be living with that binary for some time. And it may, as you said, especially as we talk about Afghan refugees coming to America, that's going to be another conversation that mm-hmm. uh, where these binaries will emerge. Uh, but, but talking a bit about representation, you mentioned the fact that I mean, certainly in the past decade, I guess, there's been this pretty impressive emergence of a crop of Muslim American um, you know, stars, including you and Hassan Minaj, Aziz Ansari, Remy Youssef, and the list goes on. Um, and what I find interesting is that it's often in comedy. Is there something mm-hmm. about the comedic genre that has provided an important space or an accessible space for Muslim Americans or for the kind of stories that you want to tell? Well, I think so. I think that comedy is an access point. You know, comedy allows people to deal with uncomfortable conversations, uncomfortable truths, you know, things that like, you know, and through satire and comedy, you can talk about these things. And so it makes sense to me that a lot of uh, of the sort of post 9-11 Muslim artists um, that have, have come to the forefront um, have come through through comedy because I think it is really a way to, uh, and, and also and, and when you're laughing with someone, you can't hate them. I mean, I mean, you recognize some universal sort of you know truth about them or about yourself, and there's kind of um, uh, simpatico that happens in, in, in comedy, you know, that doesn't happen in other in drama or in other genres, you know, music or whatever, like, it's sort of this feeling of like, oh, I, I relate to this person and and their struggles, frustrations, or just their story. And so suddenly it is a way in, in which you can heal some of that, if that's even a real possibility. You know, you, you can sort of bridge those divides a little bit with comedy. So it makes sense to me that a lot of this is, has been led, sort of the, the, the Muslim revolution, say that not to scare white people, but, uh, you know, the, uh, has been led by uh, comedians. Uh, it, makes, it makes sense, you know. So let's talk a bit about your, your, your latest work, Evil, um, season two, Paramount about- Plus. Uh, <laughs> everyone tune in. Uh, you said that the role you play in Evil is something that maybe 10 years ago you wouldn't have been able to do. Why is that? Mm-hmm. Just because I don't think they would have cast me in that role ten years ago. I think I think you know we've we look we've come a long way. In, I will say you know we've come a long way in, in sort of representative. I think diversity and and there is a definitely a, a much more conscious sort of mindset towards that now. You know, and I think that uh, in Evil we have an African American man, a white woman, and a uh, a brown uh, uh, Muslim American. Uh, man who uh, are the three leads of that show. And that is something that when I was coming up in this business uh, would have been very unusual. 
they were, you know, they, they would all been white people. Uh, and and to be fair, my character was written as a, as a, a, a non as a white Caucasian character when uh, when I read the script originally and I auditioned for it. So uh, you know they made the, the Robert and Michelle King made a conscious decision to make him a person of color. And I think we've been really great on Evil in terms of like actually hiring a very diverse uh, diverse sort of actors and. Um, you know, being much very representative of that on, on, on screen. Um, so, yeah. So we actually have a clip from the show of your character, Ben Shakir, with Wait. his mother. Uh, let's take a look. What's wrong? I don't know. We may just have one electro boost. Let me adjust. Are you okay? Yeah, great. Just having a nice sleep. So no visions of hell? No, not yet, but... But what? But I'm in my head, and that's why I'm seeing you. You're seeing me now because you've rejected everything I was for. Are you kidding me, Mom? You wanted me to be a scientist. No, I wanted you to understand science, but not reject Allah. I didn't reject Allah. Allah rejected me. I don't want to talk about this. Why are you here? Take my hand. Why? his son stop being so contrary take my hand where are we now in Vijapur where you were born oh, I haven't been here since I was six years old looks poor when did you become so contentious <laughs> You're right. Let me hear your prayers. Auzu billahi samil alim min ash-shaitan al-rajim. Bismillahi r-Rahman rahim See, was that so hard? So, so there's a lot going on there. Could you unpack what we just saw in that scene and 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 the kind of narrative force that comes through with it? Well, this is a scene. Uh, no, no big spoilers for people, but you know, in this episode, we are uh, investigating this thing called a god helmet, which allows uh, people who wear it to have visions, and sometimes people see visions of heaven and hell and other things. And so, each one of us uh, wears the god helmet, and and for Ben, he goes back to um, visit his his dead his dead mother appears to him and takes him back as you saw in that clip to India uh, when where uh, he might he spent time as a child and and uh, and it was it was great because it was actually um, it allowed you know for us to get a, a backstory into into Ben's character a little bit and where he came from and his relationship with his mother he is an atheist in the show and has rejected Islam. And so um, it, it definitely, uh, you know, created tension between him and his mother. And it was a nice, it was a nice scene to, to sort of get to shoot and play and, and for the audience to get a little bit of a peek into Ben's uh, history and background and how he ended up uh, working um, for the Catholic Church in this show, you know, where he's, he's this 
the guy who works for the Catholic Church for the Catholic Church and why he ended up there. So it was it was it was fun to to do that. It was the first time we visited that side of, of the character's uh, story. Well, I, I want to tie that kind of storytelling to um, something you wrote in a I guess in an op-ed uh, not long ago. Let me just read from it. It says, you know, stories that illuminate the experience of otherness or marginalization or exclusion are the stories that the majority culture often feels most comfortable telling because stories of ordinary people or the stories of simple human struggles are still seen as a domain of white people. Because for so long, normal people on TV, as you said, and in movies have been white people. Everyone else was other. Could you talk a bit about that in this thing? You also deploy uh, the phrase that I think is quite interesting and compelling of psychic colonialism. And I think, I think you know, could you talk a bit about how in your work and in the kind of roles you want to play or are playing, you're kind of breaking down that psychic colonialism that you felt in the past? Yeah, I mean, psychic colonialism for me is, is sort of an internalization of white supremacy. And and the 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 internalizing of that that white people um, you know for so long when I was starting out in Hollywood like it was always about like you know white like I said in that op-ed like white people were the norm and then everyone else was other and 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 everything that people of color did or the stories that were interesting were always stories that were in relation to white people in relation to the white gays like like, you know, our own relationship to our identity, our own immigrant experience, our own story of otherness or marginalization or racism or disenfranchisement, whatever that was. And it was always in relation to the white gaze and the white popular culture. And, and that was internalized. Even the stories that I told and that as a writer that I wanted to tell, I felt like I, I needed to tell those stories in relationship to what was um, digestible and accept acceptable for the popular culture, that being the majority white culture. And often those stories that were the most interesting for that majority white culture were the stories of my own marginalization or my own, um, you know, uh, just, you know, otherness. Other than, so I never, in my own self, never felt like I had the agency to explore stories of human stories of depression or or you know marital strife or you know drug abuse or whatever or or just personal sort of you know stories of like my own mundane stories of, of human life you know like those stories were sort of reserved for quote unquote white people uh, and, and because you know it, it's like the death of a salesman type story I could not tell, you know, it was, it, it wouldn't, it, it was like, well, why would these people not just be white then? If they're, if you're going to tell a story about a man struggling uh, with his own, uh, you know, family and his, his own demons, then just make them white because then they'll be more relatable, you know? And that was kind of the, the, the sort of what I would hear. So uh, I think that is still where we need to go in terms of representation. You know, I feel like culturally and in, in terms of entertainment, in terms of TV and Hollywood and all that, where we still need to go is that area where ultimately, uh, you know, and in, that, and in that piece I talk about the movie, the movie Minari and why I, I loved it so much and I thought that it was so 
brilliant because it did it did exactly that. It did it did not it did not apologize for it being just about these people, and it had nothing to do with like whether people would understand white people, quote unquote, the majority culture. And I use that as you know sort of a a term you know that, that they would would or would not understand it. And so that's what I mean by sort of psychic colonialism in the sense that like I internalized all of that. I internalized all of that adoration. And maybe it comes from also like, you know, an internalized real colonialism that happened to our people, generations, uh, you know, over over like the past few generations. I think there is in the sort of uh, South Asian, uh, you know, um, psyche, uh, a kind of adoration of Western ideals and culture that, that was sort of implanted into us by the British, you know, and, and this idea that that everything that is Western is is superior and better than what we have, uh, what in you know what is true to our own culture, and so that I think is is a, is something that we we struggle with still, and 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 I think it's up to creators and and people in our in in my industry, uh, you know, to 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 challenge that, yeah, especially. Brown creators. I think people are people like Rami Yusuf are, are, are for example, a perfect example of someone who is, I think, challenging that in 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 his show um, and and not making not making it for white people uh, and and allowing people to find it rather than bring it in in a very palatable way to them and not worried if it makes people uncomfortable, you know. Well. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think talking from from your marginalized sense, from your sense of marginalization to to now really centering certain stories and and finding this new path. Um, thank you again for sharing the story with us. Unfortunately, we are out of time and 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 have to wrap it up here. But really, thank you so much, Asif, to talk thank for talking you. to us on Washington Post Live. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And thank you all in the audience for joining us. Uh, if we have a whole robust lineup of programming to follow, so please uh, tune in to WashingtonPostLive.com to find a, a schedule of events and register for, fu for future talks. Uh, again, thank you again. And my name is Ishan Tharoor. Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com. What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL.